The Will to DIY is a podcast where writer explains to you why you, nor I, nor he will ever be good enough. Education. Yeah, you know that uh, pesky little thing that eats up the first 20 or 30 some odd years of your life, and even when you get out, you still may not get a job, and even if you do, it's probably not exactly the job you were promised, and then you start at the bottom and you have to start jumping through hoops... And as we've discussed in a previous podcast, many jobs really just want you to be a loyal pet rather than a critical thinker. And so you have to ask yourself, what was the point of all that learning, all that pain, right? Um, Well, there is one upside. Higher ed degrees provide a 30% increased earning potential. And of course, they offer enormous cultural cachet and authority, right? This is prestige. Now, despite all the flaws, I'd have to say we're probably better off with a degree than without one despite sort of the debt and hardship that we have to go through. However, when did we ever get to a point as a society where it's near mandatory to have a college degree? And if you really don't have one, we're going to sort of disdain you. And then that resentment incites a populist backlash that nearly breaks our democracy through Trump, or in England's case, Brexit. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-through on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. But I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. Part one. So let's take a closer look at how education really functions in a meritocratic society by digging further into Michael J. Sandel's The Tyranny of Meritocracy. So to recap from last episode, merit is a combination of talent and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's the story where if you work hard and play by the rules, you will earn what you deserve. You'll get a place at the table with lots of money, status, prestige, and people loving you. And all of a sudden, you're more attractive, and people offer to give you free massages, and they'll tickle your earlobes. I mean, I don't know. I really haven't made it yet, but I can just imagine that's what it's like. Now, this merit thing is really a good idea in most respects, and most of us actually believe in it. I mean, it just seems like a fair system, especially compared to like having kings and princes and junk like that. But we really need to take a quick look at how this system, this meritocracy, superseded hereditary wealth and aristocracy, as well as how it simply created a new set of inequalities. And we really need to challenge ourselves to rethink how we conceive of success in the modern world. In early Europe and America, there were these trades where you, or not really you, your parents or somebody would pay for you to apprentice somewhere, and this is how you would learn a skill or a trade. But in some cases, the really smarties or the richies, they got to go to college. Now, college was primarily for a type of elite, maybe a political elite or a wealthy family, and their family would send the kid away to go learn something. And you know, you do this by being around a group of smart thinkers, but there really weren't any degrees early on. There's really no set curriculum. You just take certain classes. This was a DIY of the self. And through these various topics you would learn, you'd become enriched, and maybe after two or six or however many years you return home a little more knowledgeable and hopefully a little bit wiser. Perhaps you were humbled by the wider world you had encountered, right? That would be the hope. 
And maybe when you return, you participate in local politics and you become a deacon at a church. And gradually you morph into being a community leader and you can guide the path of your town or your business to be successful. Or perhaps you were always a lazy, smarty-pants douchebag and your parents shipped you off because you were an insufferable bore. And when you returned, you're basically just now an educated douchebag. Which air, I dare say, old chap. I didn't expect you to return from skiing in Switzerland just to lose the polo match for us. <laughs> oh, nether bottoms. It was your ghastly pallor that frightened my horse. <laughs> oh, say, say, which are, are you going to Professor Fuddlebottom's lecture today? Oh, I can't understand a word of it. Einstein rose in Heine this and Newtonian Humperdinck's that. <laughs> Oh, so are you up for a gimlet? Well, I'm parched. <laughs> In the 1940s, James Conant, president of Harvard, saw that schools were really becoming almost exclusively clubs for the Protestant elite. Women were banned, black students were scarce, and they were barred completely from Princeton, and Jewish students were restricted by either formal or informal quotas. Now, seeing this increasing emergence of a hereditary upper class, Conant believed a democratic society's ideals were really at odds with such an elite, and America really needed intelligence and scientific prowess instead. Now, what he saw was the, quote, heedless young men whose lives revolved around parties set to dominate the leading law firms, Wall Street, and foreign services, not to mention hospitals and universities. These positions were basically being held for them and passed to them. So Conant decided he would step in, and he would create a, quote, organized system that would provide opportunity to all Americans. Hurrah, finally, right? This is great. So Conant established the use of an entry exam, the Scholastic Aptitude Test. Boo, the SAT, right? Uh, now, this becomes not just the way to hand out a few scholarships that really diversify enrollment at these colleges and universities, but, and I quote, the basic mechanism for sorting the American population. Conant's goal was education for a classless society, involving the freedom of the individual to rise under conditions of social mobility. Thus, the school system became a vast engine, recapturing the lost gifts of our country and pulling them to the top to lead and grow as our new meritocratic elite. Part 2 In 2019, a scandal came out where these parents were dropping between seventy-five dollars and $300,000 to get their kids accepted into high-end Ivy League colleges. Now, why is this so important, right? I know that once you have a college education, you can earn roughly 30% more than someone without one, but really, getting into a normal college, not an Ivy League, it's not quite that hard, right? About 90% of applicants are actually accepted into state institutions. But apparently, the networking and pedigree potential of an Ivy League signals you're the right kind of person, and it sets your child up for life in the right circles. It's basically proven by the parents' illegal behavior here that it is so vital for your child's future to get into an Ivy League that you would risk reputation and jail time. Now briefly consider the ethics modeled for these kids, right? Taylor, if you don't get into the right college, people will snicker behind your back during our fancy dinner parties. <laughs> it would be so embarrassing. Oh, what, honey? Yes, yes, we know you're dumb. 
so we'll pay a swimming coach to pretend you're on an athletic scholarship. What? Uh, yeah, we know you can't swim. What? Uh, oh, dear, dear. Once you're in, we will bribe everybody until you get a degree. And then, and only then, can we be proud of you. And yet, let's also look at this, right? 60% of Americans don't have a college degree. And if you must have an Ivy League degree to make it, then what do we think of those without even a state college degree, right? In our first Tyranny of Merit podcast, the overwhelming answer in both Europe and America is that we are unapologetically biased against the undereducated more than their race, religion, obesity, or anything else. It's really our biggest prejudice. And this credential signaling has really developed a diploma divide in our country, where our presidents and authorities are constantly using this rhetoric of rising to say, if you work hard, follow the rules, and get an education, you too will be successful. We all have equal opportunity because we have equal access to education. So you're telling me it's fair? It's completely fair, right? If you fail, that's your fault, right? Because we all had an equal chance. And I imagine your, your life was probably just like Taylor's or Trey's, right? Where you were chauffeured to private school, where tutors coached and worked with you to get your SAT scores up. And yes, that's actually how it's done. The rich pay for SAT coaching to ensure their kids get a 1400 or higher on the test. Some colleges, such as the University of Chicago, they've just completely stopped taking SAT scores as an entry requirement, right? In part, that's because they've been shown that SAT scores are directly correlated with the wealth of the family. These are no longer a good indicator for intelligence. The richer you are, the better your SAT score. So wait, wait, hang on, Ryder. I thought Conan set up the SAT to scrape up the smart talent, give people an equal chance, so that we could get away from all this artificial aristocracy and hereditary wealth. And now you're telling me we're right back where we were? And yes, that is what I'm saying. Here's a couple stats for you. Only 3% of the students from low-income backgrounds attend the most selective colleges, while 70% come from the top quarter of the income scale. If you happen to come from a 1% rich family, you're 77 times more likely to attend an Ivy League. Today, the children of the working class and poor are as unlikely to attend Harvard, Yale, or Princeton as they were in 1954. So much for all that equality, right? Sure, the kids that get sorted into these great schools, they work very hard, and just because they come from wealthy families doesn't mean it's easy on them. Between volunteering and participating in extracurriculars to pad the resume, because all the other wealthy kids are also going to have a 1400 on the SAT, right? So now you also have to be able to cure cancer while playing a viola and doing it all with grace and poise. In fact, it basically starts now with three-year-olds having to interview for prestigious pre-K classes. And these kids know that if they screw up once or fail anything, their path to happiness and success might vanish completely. So educational sorting has created this kind of meritocratic arms race, robbing our children of their childhood. It creates helicopter parenting, and it produces a neurotic, anxiety-riddled cohort that further entrenches wealth and inequality. And if you think all this is just hyperbole, right, that I'm just inflating this, look at the suicide rates of young girls. Look at the prevalence of anti-anxiety and depression medication. And for more on these kind of topics, read The Coddling of the American Mind. But also, consider this in conjunction with the deaths of despair that we discussed last episode for men in their 40s and 50s who have lost their way of life. 
All it takes is determination, hard work, and sacrifice to achieve the American dream. Is our meritocracy sacrificing us and creating a generation of brittle souls? Part 3 We need to also remember those who rise from the low-income sector. What does their story look like? Well, if you have the ability and you make the choice, you can achieve and rise. But the trade-off is you really don't get to be you anymore or maintain your familial values. On the podcast Hidden Brain, Shankar Vedanta recently had Jennifer Morton on, sharing not only how achievement alienated her from her family, but also the pressure and sacrifices caused the deformation of her students' lives as they tried to achieve the American dream. A poignant parable is told at the very beginning. The Tale of the Stairs. So this grimy plebeian, who came from the masses of stick-thin, gray-skinned plebes wrapped in rags and spitting insanity and hatred into the sky with no effect, well, he's standing at the foot of the stairs of a white marble palace. And the devil asks him who he is. I am a plebeian by birth, and all ragged folks are my brothers. How terrible the world! I shall have revenge for all my brothers upon those at the top. And the devil says, Oh, I cannot betray those at the top without a bribe. I have no gold, but I can give you my life. And the devil says, Oh, I don't need anything as grand as that. Just give me your hearing. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, you can have my hearing. Wait. I can still hear. But the groans of my brothers have turned into songs and laughter. So the boy starts to climb. And the devil says, To go further, I must have your eyes. Terribly sorry, old chap. No, I need my eyes to avenge my brothers. And the devil says, Oh, you will still see, just differently. So the boy climbs three more steps, and when he looks back to see his brothers, their naked and bleeding bodies, he saw instead them clothed in fine robes with roses where they once had open sores. How very strange. When did they find such nice clothes? And he turns back to progress upward, only needing one more step to exact his vengeance. And the devil stops him again and says, Oh, you will need to give me your heart to enter. That is too cruel. I am not so cruel as you imagine. Now, in exchange, I will give you a heart of gold and a brand new memory. But you are taking away all of my human nature. No one will be more wretched than me. On the contrary, you will be happy. If you do not do this, you cannot avenge your brothers. What do you say? It's not your life, it's just your heart and your memory. With rage and clenched fists, the boy says, Very well, take them. And as the boy crosses the threshold, his clenched fists relax and his stern hate shifts to radiant joy. And when he looks down again, he hears the songs of the masses and their laughter, and he sees them clothed in splendor. And when the devil asks him slyly, Who are you? I am a prince by birth, and the gods are my brothers. How beautiful the world is, and how happy are the people. Part 4 when I taught college for roughly 10 years, I would often ask my students why they were in my art classes, right? Well, they had to take it for credit, of course. 
And then I'd ask, well, what do you really want out of college? Well, a degree, so I can make more money, of course. And then somewhere in the middle of the class, some clever student would say something about, well, why do we need to learn this stuff if it's not going to apply in the real world? No one makes any more money because they know who Agamemnon is or that Jackson Pollock was an asshole. And that's true. And Sandell offers the same type of rationalizations that I used to give. An employer wants to see that you can accomplish something. Your ability to make it through school proves you can work with different types of people to achieve your goals. Yeah. Now, basically, if you're socially agreeable, morally flexible, and ambitious enough to jump through the arbitrary hoops set by irrelevant authority figures such as professors, in essence, college is the perfect training ground. As Robert Jackal says in Moral Mazes, the demonstrated ability of a student to leap over increasingly high hurdles in school is taken as evidence of the ability to weather well the probationary trials of corporate life. Drew, welcome to the family team here at Control Corp. I see you have an MBA with a specialization in corporate management practices. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but we do things a bit differently here, okay? First off, you're going to need to get out of that nice suit and put on this cheap suit so no one thinks you're a show-off, okay? And by the way, I'm the only one that gets to wear suspenders here. And let's also say, for your own good, while at work, never go off and say things like, it would be more efficient if, or wouldn't it make more sense too? I mean, every time you get the urge to offer advice from things you learned in college, I want you to put a dollar in the good teamwork makes the dream work jar. As a matter of fact, just don't speak for the first year and I can guarantee you a promotion. Now we're going to start you out in a very prestigious position. Here's your pine saw and your notepad. You need to follow around the executive vice president, take notes of anything he says that's coherent, <laughs> even closely coherent, and clean up the drool and stool. Alright, thank you. Yeah, oh, hey Drew, I can already tell you're a good team player, buddy, and you're going to do what's best for this company. Which, by the way, involves keeping that EVP away from any females in the office. Alright, see you later, buddy. So, how much did you spend on your degree, right? I mean, you know, with tuition and fees and room and board. In 1971, that would have been about five grand. Or inflation adjusted, it would have been about 32000 for a four-year degree. Now, it's somewhere between 80000 and 250000 And we needed a master's because, of course, now a four-year degree is the equivalent of high school, so you have to go get a master's. And the people I know that have gotten one, they come out another $120,000 in debt. So to achieve this American dream, to rise and utilize your talents, well, it's now more costly than ever. In 1971, getting a degree was about mm, 20% of a man's annual earning potential. Well, now it's over 50%. And for women, it's over 70%. Now, this is really an unsustainable system if we value upward mobility, rather than a, some sort of hereditary aristocracy, right? Tuition costs have risen eight times faster than wages. So the rungs on the ladder to success, they just keep getting spread further and further apart. It's almost like we built these bridges to success and then we showed everyone pictures of Elysium and then we started jacking up the tolls while burning their village down behind them. Now, if you're one of the 34% who do have a degree, Many of us have these lifelong handicaps of this unforgivable student debt. This just becomes another life hurdle that has become the second largest form of debt 
and it's right there behind home lending. So yes, college is pricey. The gates to heaven are turning back into the eye of a needle. But let's circle back around to how this plays out sociologically across our entire country. The opportunity and mobility promised in a meritocratic system, well, it's now been subverted back into a wealth system. This still functions on the ideology and rhetoric of rising, right? So you rise through your efforts still. We still talk about hoop jumping. And there's still this illusion that equal opportunity is available to all. Now, this just reinforces a perception of those on top that they actually earned their place, allowing for the elite and their hubris and entitlement to disdain the less educated. Well, this disdain, upheld by the diploma divide, it's also fallen into political lines, further sorting out our country. We may not actually be any more partisan now than we ever were in the past. We might just be better sorted out, thanks in part to credentialization. So, for instance, Trump, he won two-thirds of white voters without degrees, while Hillary Clinton won most of the votes with those with advanced degrees. Brexit followed pretty much the same pattern, the undereducated versus the highly educated, and we had a populist backlash. Clinton went on to say that she won the votes of the optimistic, diverse, and forward-moving, where Trump got his votes from those who didn't like black people getting rights or didn't like women. This increasingly signals a moral shift where the Democratic Party, who once stood for the farmers and the working people against the privileged classes, now boasts that the degreed winners of globalization, the privileged, vote Democrat. Yet increasingly we must remember, our achievements should not be confused with our moral worth. So how do we rebalance for these extremes of meritocratic sorting, and of course taking into account all the psychological wounds that it inflicts on the winners, and the indignities it inflicts on those seen as the losers? Sandel proposes a lottery of the qualified. A Yale admissions committee guy was quoted a while back as saying, You sometimes have the nasty feeling you could take all the thousands of applications, throw them down the stairs, pick up any thousand, and produce a class that's at least as good as the one coming out of the committee meeting. And Sandel says that maybe we should consider doing exactly this. Just randomly select 2,000 applicants from the 25,000 submissions. This reintroduction of luck, fate, or chance, this still maintains some merit because you have to get into the pool of applicants in the first place, but it also really considers the hubris of a committee to pick what they consider winners. For instance, in sports, Nolan Ryan was a 295th draft pick for baseball, but of course now he's in the Hall of Fame. And Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks in all of football, he was a 199th draft pick. So what does that say about the people who are picking? So letting chance, fate, or luck back into the decision, it does two things. One, if you didn't get into your school, it wouldn't be a personal condemnation of you and your efforts. And if you did get into school, it would mean that you weren't really better than anyone else. It was just chance or fate or luck. It could also restore sanity to the young, alleviating the soul-killing resume-stuffing perfection seekers from being crushed if they don't make it. Their helicopter parents might calm down a bit, and perhaps we could also raise emotionally healthy children. The second thing this does is it reminds us that those who do land on top did not make it on their own, but they arrived there in large part due to good fortune. And this basically needs to imbue all winners with a little bit more humility when they move through the world. Sandel's next suggestion is to dismantle this sorting machine that we've built. We can figure out how to make a successful life that's not so dependent on a four-year degree. 
This really requires, though, honoring other forms of work and learning and training. The emphasis on four-year degrees can be seen through governmental support, right? Uh, there's $162 billion spent helping people go to four-year colleges, but only $1 billion was, sub- was spent on career and tech education. Now, countries such as France, Finland, and Sweden, they spend about 1% of their GDP on training and tech programs, while the U.S., we spend 0.1%. That's less than we spend on prisons. Given that only one-third of Americans get a bachelor's degree, we need to really consider how we can take seriously the educational needs of the remaining two-thirds. One way is to better fund vocational training, right? Another is to recognize that colleges only offer a partial education. While a four-year degree definitely grants prestige, it does not offer much in the way of civic or moral education, and it's become increasingly hampered as a place to exchange ideas, right, and have free speech. And this is leading to a morally impoverished public discourse. And that has all helped generate our populist backlash. But to reinvigorate this public-private discourse, we can look to organizations that are outside of the schools, that promote an independence of mind and cultivation. Sandel points to the 19th century Knights of Labor as such a group. American mechanics, it was said, are not untaught operatives, but an enlightened, reflective people who not only know how to use their hands, but are familiar with principles. So, to recap, meritocracy uses the education system as a sorting machine. Achieving admissions to highly prestigious schools generates anxiety and trauma. Wealth has skewed standardized testing to where it's no longer a measure of intelligence or equality, and our fixation on valorizing degrees as markers of success and intelligence leads us to disdain those who have different values, such as family needs. And this creates a resentful populist backlash. We must find a way to honor different forms of labor and diminish the increasing divide. Sandel recommends reinstituting a measure of luck, a lottery, and this taking the pressure off the ambitious and granting a fair chance to those from less privileged backgrounds. All right, thank you so much. I'm about talked out, but I really enjoyed Sandel's book for offering ways to consider several of the problems I encountered while teaching and that I now find in the workplace. Speaking of the workplace, I'm currently reading Robert Jackal's Moral Mazes, and this is about the lives and survival practices of corporate managers. If you have any insight or you want to contribute to the upcoming episode, please reach out to me. As always, if you like what you heard, please subscribe, share, and donate so I can keep this thing going.